Welcome to Factor Magri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and growers, industry, the science community, and policymakers to hear their news and views on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week on Factor Magri, farmer Robert Peacock joins me to discuss emissions and some strategies farmers can explore in what is a challenging environment currently. He joins me now. Hello, Robert. Thank you for joining me today. That's okay. Morning, Angus. Can you please tell me a bit about your farming business, where you farm and what you farm? Okay, so we farm at Arari Gorge Station, which is in the South Canterbury foothills just near Geraldine. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly hill country, about 10% flat, 15% rolling and mm. 75% uh, tussock country. Uh, pretty steep rise from about two or 700 um, foot up to about three and a half thousand foot. Uh, we're farming about 25% sheep, uh, sorry, 50% sheep, 25% cattle, 25% deer. That's quite a good uh, mixed farming model you've got there. Yes, yeah, it is. The last few years, we're just sort of trying to sort of wind back the sheep a bit, probably looking for a more 40% sheep, 30% cattle, 30% deer is our current strategy. How has the summer been? Uh, not too bad. Um, yeah, I often say Arari Gorge is a good place to live in a dry year. Yeah, We do tend to catch a few showers, and each time it rains, we get a, a little bit more than just down the road. Mm. Um, it's not so much fun in a wet year. But um, but this year, yeah, we've been, been lucky. Um, we're still green. Grass has been a bit slow, especially on the flats, but, um, but at least it's still green. Do you irrigate any of those flats? No. No, no, we've got no irrigation, mm. and and our flats are fairly stony as well. So yep. yeah, they can dry out when the rain stops. I'm keen to get your thoughts on some of the challenges facing farmers currently. One of which is emissions. What do you make of farmers being asked to calculate their emission profile and ultimately being taxed for that? Um, well, in, in a word, I think farming at the moment is tough. Um, it's mm. it's very difficult. We're all in the same boat. Um, rising costs, uh, soft commodity prices. Um, you could argue how much of that's the market's fault or the the marketer's fault, um, but it is what it is. Um, yeah, and on top of that, obviously the last few years we've had rising regulations, either being forced upon us or at least talked about and threatened, um, and then obviously the the emissions. On top of that, mm. um, yeah, I think it's it's a really tricky area. Um, whether you believe in global warming or man-made climate change or not, mm. um, the science behind the emissions is is quite different depending on which sort of school of thought you want to listen to. Mm. Um, and if farmers do need to calculate their own emissions. The, it's it's just going to be very generic calculations. Uh, I mean, it, it really comes down to number of sheep equals kilos of carbon. Uh, we're not feeding our sheep or our cows in a pastoral farming system, so we can't feed them the additives that people are touting as being game changers for carbon reduction. Um, Dairy farmers do have that option potentially, but again, not cheap and 
not necessarily for everyone and not not all year round. Um, obviously, um, there is the genetic option, but we we are involved with um, with sheep breeding and cattle breeding. So we we have been measuring our sheep for um, methane emissions, mm. and there is a definite difference there genetically. But it's not a, a free lunch. It is it is still strongly linked to intake, and you know, some sheep can emit less carbon um, and still be good producers. But there are some general trends where that's not the case. And on a general scale, if you're going to select for less carbon without really digging into the breeding values properly, you're going to lower the intake and therefore lower the production. And you've got to be careful that you're not just selecting for a slower growing animal if they eat less they grow slower and therefore they're around longer and therefore they end up emitting the same amount of carbon or methane um mm. yeah i mean the, the the genetics is definitely an option i mean yeah i mean agriculture have done a great job with um developing their methane measuring um it's a it's a real thing when you see the results um the difference between individual animals is is quite large and when you put it into different sire lines, there's there's definite differences, but um, but it's it's really difficult. We're already breeding for ten or fifteen different traits, and you're just adding another trait on. Mm. It's it's hard to be going forwards and everything. So, what mitigation tools do you need as a farmer? Is it the ability to have all farm sequestration recognised? And of course, you've touched on low methane emitting livestock. What do you need? Um. Yeah, well, the sequestration in general in in soil is difficult. There's thoughts that geologically New Zealand is quite young, and every time you disturb the soil, the carbon you've gained, you lose again. Um, so we've got to be careful we don't go too far down that track and end up being told we're actually um, going backwards there. Mm. Um, like hill country where you don't disturb the soil is definitely... Um, capturing the carbon um, so that should potentially be a, a credit the trees are, are the obvious answer um, but but they don't last forever um, at some stage they either stop growing and you either harvest them or if you think that it's going to sit there holding that carbon forever there, there's wind damage they fall down they rot um, so in a hundred years' time, they will start releasing that carbon. Yeah, we've got a lot of native bush on our property, and we we get very little for it in terms of carbon credits because it's although parts of it are regenerating and growing, there are also parts that are falling over and sort of releasing, and that's how you you can only regenerate bush if you lose bush. So it's mm, a yeah, it's not a it's not a big gain for farmers. And just on the pine tree one, are you a fan of pine trees in general? And do you think it should be farmers benefiting from exotic forests only? Or are you comfortable with wholesale land use change from the likes of international corporations buying New Zealand farms and offsetting their own emissions? I think the the sale of wholesale farms into pine trees by New Zealanders is marginal enough. Um, by overseas buyers, I think is 
just outright criminal that they've been allowed to do that. If if they want to buy a farm to farm it, it's very hard for them to get through the overseas commissions. Um, but if they want to put it in trees, they just get green flagged and away they go. You see farms, beautiful farms, well farmed, well maintained, good food producers, and their advert in the sales pitch is 40 minutes from Napier Port or um, or something like that, just because that's where the logs are going to go. Um, mm. it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, no other country allows the percentage of offset as we do. In most countries, if you're emitting carbon through your industry, you can plant trees to offset maybe 5 or 10% of your emissions. If you want to do better than that, you actually have to reduce emissions. Whereas in New Zealand, you can plant trees to offset 100% of your emissions. So there's no incentive for them to actually reduce the emissions. They're just going to plant their way out of it. Um, in the mm. Paris Accord, it was quite firmly stated that countries needed to do what they could do, but not at the expense of food production and not at the expense of local economy. Um, so to take whole farms out of food production into trees goes dead against the Paris Accord. Um, there are some communities where you just take one farm out of farming and put it into trees, and that can completely wreck the whole community. You might have had a farm with a, an owner and two shepherds, which might have meant there was three kids at the local school, possibly a teacher, um, one or two people working off farm in the local town. Um, you take that farm out of the equation, it, it changes everything. It can send a school under, they can drop from a two-teacher school down to a, a one-teacher school, um, things like that. So I'm all in favour of farmers being allowed to plant trees, um, but it comes down to right tree, right place. We've got trees on our place, but they're all in areas that weren't very productive at all. Our least productive land mm. went into trees. Um, but blanket planting should should just be made criminal, in my opinion. Um, and and the other thing is that it's all based on 1991. If you had trees in 1990, they don't count. And then when you harvest them and replant them, you still can't claim on them, which is ridiculous. So, I mean, if you raped and pillaged your land and did everything wrong, and then all of a sudden you had a checkbook waved in front of you and said, well, that looks good, I'll plant some trees, you get rewarded. But if you've been looking after your native bush and planting a few trees in the right place before 1990, you, you're struggling to get anything out of it. We have a new government. What are you expecting from them in these areas? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not easy for any government um, in this situation. And, and the trouble with a lot of these, the Paris Accord, the Kyoto Protocol, it all went down to improving what you were doing. So a country like New Zealand that was already producing 80% of its power through renewable energy, mainly hydro, it's actually really hard to improve that when you've got a growing population needing more power. Mm. Whereas other countries that had zero to 5% of their power coming from renewable energy, it's it's easy to improve. Mm. So, so New Zealand doesn't have that option of just putting in a few solar panels or a few wind turbines. They're needing to do that just to keep up with the, the fresh demand. So they do have to look at other options and, and trees are an option, but um, 
but to allow urban-based industries to take food-producing land out of food and into trees is wrong. They need to be actually reducing their emissions. Um, you've got people driving around doing the school run in their SUV, doing several unnecessary trips a day. They could have walked or got the bus. Mm. They're going to the supermarket several times a week, buying out of season imported produce. Um, it's all those things where, like, farmers are expected to improve. But, I mean, you've got people living in town. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, we, we go to the supermarket as well. We buy the food yeah, as well. Of course. Um, we drive, we have to drive further to the supermarket than they do. Um, but but none of that's really sort of being tackled. Mm. Um, we all go on holiday. Um, because it was too hard for the countries to agree, the overseas travel isn't included. Mm. Um, so... New Zealand is basing itself on tourism, which is proven to be a, a massive emitter. You've mm. got cruise ships and planes coming from Europe, which for our economy is great, but sort of stopping a few cows farting is going to do nothing compared to those cruise ships coming in. Um, it needs to be a global setup. And you've, I mean, people say, oh, New Zealand can't solve the world on their own. We're too small. And that's true. We've still got to try and do a little bit, but um, it's, it's difficult when you've got our own tourism industry and other countries are still producing coal. And and the way the whole thing's managed that if you produce the coal, it depends who gets taxed. So, I mean, we're importing coal from Indonesia, shipping it across the ocean, docking it in Auckland, trucking it to Huntley to a power to fuel a power station because on our carbon footprint that looks better than mining the coal that's directly under the power station and mm -hmm. that's why it was built there mm. the coal under that power station is very clean burning the coal they're importing is not it's the dirtiest coal you can find because mm. it's cheap plus you've got all the carbon getting it here clogging up our roads with the trucks burning diesel um even just the wood chip, like um, companies moving from a coal-based um, heating system to a wood chip burning system, um, the wood chip they need is 10 times the amount of coal they needed. So you've got 10 times more trucks burning diesel, carting it around. And yes, it is a renewable energy. You're growing it and burning it compared to digging it out of the ground and burning it. But it's, it's not as simple as that. You've got all the extra trucks on the road burning diesel, um, causing damage to the roads, um, congestion to the roads. Um, there's a lot of unforeseen circumstances by what looks like an easy box-ticking exercise. So when we go to the UN, we can say we've reduced that and reduced that. But we haven't actually, on a global scale, we've actually made the problem worse. It's hard to disagree with all of that. Now, of course, Farmgate returns and nothing to write home about currently, especially when you consider ever-increasing input costs. What are some things farmers are doing or can do, in your view, to mitigate some of these soft returns? Um, well, it's, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, most farmers, the only thing they can do is try and spend less. Um, and some of that is is okay. You can cut some costs without too many consequences but 
there are other things that if you what you put off this year, such as fertilizer or mm. repairs and maintenance, might cost you more next year. You can't put it off forever. Mm. Um, so it is it is really difficult to try and cut those costs. I mean, there are people that are sort of dropping a labor unit where they can, but again, that's not good for the community. Um, it's not good for people's mental health when they've suddenly got to work sort of two people's job, owner operators that might've had one person and suddenly can't afford it. So they're having to work 80, 90 hours a week themselves, which is okay for short periods like harvest, but it's not good when it's all year round. Um, it's just not sustainable. Um, I think, I mean, obviously you can try and put another kilo on a lamb, but South Island's pretty dry. That's, that's pretty hard to do and doesn't necessarily make a huge difference to the bottom line compared to what they eat. Mm. And you might be eating into the sort of next year's scanning percentage as well by doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some quality things where um, if, if the meat works offer premiums, you you can start trying to hit those premiums, whether they're through um, farm assurance programs or through meat eating quality with marbling and things, both in lamb and in obviously beef is the main one, um, which does involve a bit in investing in the genetics. Not all animals marble equally, so you do need to invest in the right genetics. Um, I am a obviously a stud breeder, so. I sort of might look at it a bit differently with the genetics, but people do need to look at genetics as an investment. It's not necessarily paying a more expensive bull, but just buying the right bull. Uh, fertility is the key in any any species. Um, you get your fertility, your growth, your carcass quality, um, just trying to make more out of um, what you've got. Often, um, like beef and lamb field days, there's, there's no silver bullet. The difference between a good farmer and a bad farmer is normally nothing special. They're just just doing the little things right. They don't necessarily put more fertilizer on, but they just might put the right fertilizer at the right time. Um, they're investing in their genetics. They they move their stock sort of on the right day rather than trying to get an extra day out of a paddock. It's um all just those those little things that that add up. Mm. Um, trying to follow best practice with feeding stock as well as you can isn't always the cheapest option um, like growing winter feed or summer crops depending on your climate has just got more and more expensive so i know beef and lamb ran a few grass wintering field days last year and, and they were some of the most popular field days they've they've run for a long time people interested to see whether they can get some tips trying to cut some costs plant a bit less crop um, but it's it's not it's not easy. You can't mm. necessarily do it with the same stocking rate. You might have to cut your stocking rate back. So production isn't always profit. Yep. And um, whether you're going up in production or down in production, um, it's it's not always the most profitable option. Do you ever see farmers in this country being in a position to move away from commodity based trading? Um. I think it's a good target. Um, I sometimes say we, we don't need another billion people in the world. A billion people in the world paying commodity prices isn't going to make farmers rich, um, especially in the long run. But if we have another million millionaires that are prepared to pay a premium for our product, that would probably be more beneficial. Um, 
like beef and lamb have got the the taste pure nature campaign running um there are lots of meat companies that offer premiums for for the marbling you've got um smaller farm either big farmers or groups of farmers trying to run their own um product brand mm. uh, i think so the grass-fed label is is definitely worth pursuing um but you go overseas and you see some of those those steaks that are pumped full of grain and mm. high marbling and they're four hundred dollars a kilo compared to the grass-fed beef next to it that's only fifty dollars a kilo um so i mean i think that's where things like the genetics and the forages come in you You've got to get that marbling up if you're going to really chase those premiums and get away from the commodities. Grass-fed system that that's really hard. So mm. you, you've got to get those genetics in, um, and sort of learn a bit about the produce how to produce marbling because it's not just genetics and it's not just feeding. It's getting both of them right. Um, mm. There's a lot of little things on the way, um, but yeah, I think. It's hard for a whole country to move away from commodity trading, but I mean, we're only feeding sort of 30 or 40 million people externally. So, yeah, we, we need to, in my opinion, we need to be focusing on as much premiums as we can because years like this, the commodities don't go so well. I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. Thank you very, very much for your time. Yeah, no trouble, Angus. I'm sure many farmers can relate to what Robert said. With a new government, now having its feet under the table, we turn to them to set this country on a path that underpins and provides certainty for farmers in this country. So watch this space. That's all from me this week. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.